0: Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea, this is Naked Oceans.
1: Coming up on Naked Oceans this month, we're venturing beneath the waves to look at climate change in the oceans. What changes are we already seeing, how is it affecting marine life, and what are the prospects for the future? We'll be calling in on the Arctic and the Antarctic to find out what's going on in some of the most vulnerable parts of the world... And we'll be meeting some animals from the bottom of the sea at the bottom of the world.
0: Oh my god, that's huge. It's, it's, like, it's almost the size of a dinner plate. That is massive. We'll find out what that was
1: and why it's so enormous later on in the programme. Hello, I'm Helen Scales and with me
0: is Picnagonid loving Sarah Castor Perry. Hi Sarah. Hello. We'll also be finding out about how whales have to sing louder so they can hear each other in noisy oceans how there may be more fish lurking in the very deepest, darkest parts of the ocean than we ever imagined. And in Critter of the Month, we'll be asking a top marine scientist to tell us if they were a marine creature, what would they be and why. They make huge
2: stony skeletons and the surface is covered with little mouths surrounded by tentacles that look like stars.
0: That was Nancy Knowlton from the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned to find out what species she was describing. If you have any questions about the oceans
1: or you just like to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. Get tweeting at NakedOceans or send us an email. The address is NakedOceans at thenakedscientist.com.
0: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans. On the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
1: Well, let's kick off with some news from the ocean world. And if you've ever tried to have a conversation in a crowded bar, chances are you'll have ended up shouting yourself hoarse to be heard over the din. Well, it turns out that whales do something similar. And just like people, if things get too noisy, they may end up just giving up talking altogether. But unlike people, they probably don't just head for the dance floor. Susan Parks from Penn State University led a team who tagged 14 North Atlantic right whales in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. And they put acoustic tags on them that recorded all their calls as well as background noises. Well, they found that at times when background noise was louder, probably because of commercial shipping activity nearby, individual lone whales called at a greater intensity. That's essentially with more energy, strongly suggesting that the whales were trying to make sure that they were heard over the noise. And we already know that birds and primates do similar things when things get noisy around them as well. Well, shouting louder isn't necessarily a great idea for whales. It takes more energy, and it makes them more likely to be heard by predators. And those important messages that they're trying to communicate could get mixed up. And ultimately, whales may not be able to hear each other, at least not over such long distances. Well, Sarah, do you know why they're called right whales? I actually don't. I have no idea. Well, it's a little bit sad, actually, but supposedly um, in the times when whale hunting was was all the rage, these were the right whales to hunt. They're full of blubber and they float after they've been harpooned instead sort of diving down deep um, and where they're difficult to, to retrieve. So the upshot is that these whales were almost hunted to extinction. Now, this study has really important implications for the conservation efforts of remaining right whales. This, the calls that the team studied are called up calls, and these are picked up on automated sound recorders that are set up in the sea, and they give us an estimate of how many whales there are in a particular area. And that provides crucial data for population monitoring. So if the whales are changing their calls when the waters get noisy, it could mean that these automated whale detectors are actually inaccurate. So it's a really important finding, not only because it provides yet more evidence that marine mammals could fare badly as the oceans get noisier, but because we may have to look again at the ways we use to work out how many of them there are left.
0: Well, I've definitely had the, the sore throat the morning after the night before, after having shouted in a crowded bar. It's not, not pleasant. Um, well, I've got another story here. Uh, a team of researchers from the University of Aberdeen have found that there actually may be more fish living at extreme depths of the ocean than we previously realised. The group, led by Toyonobu Fuji used a free-fall lander baited with mackerel and equipped with a camera to observe life in the Haddle Zone of the Japan Trench in the Pacific Ocean. The Haddle Zone describes depths of between 6,000 metres and the full ocean depth of 11,000 metres. And the evidence for fish living at these depths has in the past been pretty uncertain and mainly based on trawling records, which are actually pretty unreliable because it's not really clear at what depth the fish really entered the net, so it can be quite unreliable with numbers. But by using direct observation with a camera, the team were able to record the deepest ever observation of a group of fish called snailfish at 7,703 metres depth. What was really exciting about using a camera rather than a trawl net was they were also able to observe the behaviour of the fish, which isn't something that has been done before and obviously isn't something you can do by just pulling some fish out of a net. From the observations, the team argued that although the numbers of these particular fish were much higher than expected, the diversity of fish species at great depth is actually probably much lower than previously estimated, although they did stress that our knowledge of the Haddle zones of the deep ocean is still pretty inadequate and incomplete, I guess because Pretty hard place to study, really. Great depth, great pressure, you need a lot of specialist equipment to go down there. So
1: it is awesome to think of all the stuff we still don't really know about because it's just out of our range, but snailfish at seven kilometres beneath the sea. I mean, that's just fantastic. There's also an important study just out showing that if we take steps to improve local water quality, we can help coral reefs cope with the global problems of climate change and warming seas. Scientists at Florida Institute for Technology studied reefs across the Florida Keys, and that was throughout three periods of coral bleaching, which is when raised sea temperatures caused the life-giving algae to abandon their coral hosts, often killing them in the process. And in 2005, over half of the reefs in Florida bleached. Well, the research team found that the reefs that were hit the hardest were in areas where municipal wastewater runs off the land and dumps nutrients like nitrates and phosphates into coastal waters. This stresses out the corals, encouraging blooms of aggressive, big, leafy algae that outcompetes corals and makes them more susceptible to bleaching. Well, the healthier reefs that coped better with warmer sea temperatures were those bathed in cleaner water – Now, in the face of so many problems linked to climate change, like warmer, more acidic waters, sea level rise and all those sorts of things, it can be really difficult to remain positive about the state of the oceans and in particular the vulnerable habitats we have like coral reefs. But essentially this study offers really good evidence that taking small local steps to keep water clean can play a crucial role in keeping reefs healthy, making them more likely to survive other threats from climate change which will need long-term and international solutions. So really it's a perfect case of thinking globally
0: but acting locally. Well, one of the ways that of knowing how things are going to respond in the future is what, what have we got now? What, what species are we likely to lose in the future? And just finally, a really exciting piece of news has come out this week, which is to do with the census of marine life. This has been a decade-long, worldwide project to catalogue all the life in the oceans, so pretty big ask. And the final results are going to be released on the 4th of October this year. But this week, an initial roll call of what species are present in the 25 marine areas of the census has been published in the journal PLOS One. The diversity and distribution of species in areas like Antarctica, the Mediterranean, the Humboldt Current and the Indian Ocean, to name just a few of the areas, were estimated using known literature and published and unpublished data. Australian and Japanese waters came out as the most biodiverse, and the most abundant group of animals was the crustaceans, which made up almost a fifth of all known species across the regions, followed by mollusks with 17% and fish at 12%. The category of other vertebrates, which included all whales, dolphins, seabirds, seals and turtles, only came out at 2% of all species prime example of how the best-known species may only form a tiny portion of the diversity. The inventory has been a really important part of the census project because it not only tells us some interesting information about what lives where, but it's also going to provide a baseline for measuring changes in the diversity and distribution in responses to changes and threats posed by humans, just like you know nutrient runoff, acidification, and all that sort of thing in the future
1: it's fantastic crustaceans are the kings and queens of the oceans we should not overlook the crustaceans and the mollusks brilliant stuff absolutely well we look forward to that release of
0: the final reports in october and if you'd like to find out more about these stories and many more check out thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans
3: from seagrass to sunfish dugongs to diatoms this is naked oceans
1: This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. Now, there's little doubt that the increasing level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is already leading to some really worrying impacts in our oceans. The effects of climate change in the marine realm is a huge topic, with all sorts of important implications and issues to consider. Well, to get a handle on where we're at, I spoke to John Bruno from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He recently wrote a review in the journal Science, summing up all we currently know about what's already going on and what we might expect to see in the coming years.
4: It's surprising how quickly this is all happening. I thought I would mostly spend my career warning people about the dangers of future climate change, but it's happening so quickly I'm actually witnessing it and probably will spend half my career studying it.
1: So what kind of changes are we seeing happening in the oceans?
4: So we're, we're seeing first very simple changes. Animals um, simply dying when the water gets too hot. Um, so corals and many other animals have um, very uh, specific um, thermal thresholds, so they can only tolerate temperatures either too warm or too cold to a certain degree. And so, for example, if um, summertime water temperatures get about a degree Celsius or a little bit more warmer than as usual, that can kill corals. And then, of course, once the corals die, um, the rest of the reef um really degrades because so many fish and invertebrates depend on the corals. But I think the really interesting thing from um, our review article was how many other more fundamental but in a lot of ways less visible changes um, are occurring as a result of climate change um, generally and um, ocean warming in particular. So it's not as simple as warming happens, animal dies. So that's pretty simple and that's I think what scientists have been looking for and what the public probably um, expects. Um, but there's far more fundamental changes, for example, in, in processes. So we know from experimental evidence that things like larval develop, development in metabolism are very sensitive to temperature. It's a very difficult thing to actually measure um, in the field. But there are some related phenomena um, from this broader field of science called um, the metabolic theory of ecology um, that we are seeing. So, for example, um, plankton in the North Atlantic are getting smaller, and that's exactly what the metabolic theory of ecology predicts. Um, The warmer the temperature, the smaller the organisms. So we're seeing both um, phytoplankton, the small plants, and zooplankton, the animals that eat them, getting smaller and smaller, and part of that is um, selection for smaller individuals within a species. And part of that's the replacement of larger-bodied species by smaller-bodied species.
1: And we're talking phytoplankton. We're talking changes there are going to ripple all the way through the ecosystems.
4: That's right. And so those changes might sound um, not so profound. Okay, so phytoplankton gets smaller. Uh, But here's two really big implications. One is that it reduces the efficiency of what's called um, the carbon pump. And that is the rate at which um, the ocean ecosystem in the, uh, in the in the middle of the ocean extracts carbon dioxide um, and essentially moves it down into the deep water. And that happens when phytoplankton die, they sink down to the bottom, and then that carbon in their bodies effectively gets stored for a long time. And that's a really useful thing um, for us right now because it's mitigating some of the carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere. There's another interesting implication for fisheries. So the transfer of energy from one trophic level to another, for example, from plant to herbivore, from herbivore to carnivore, um, is very inefficient. So only about 10% um, of the energy from a plant, for example, makes it into the herbivore. And that's true all the way up the food chain. So the smaller the plants are, you end up adding another trophic level um, to the food chain. And what that does is reduces the biomass and Of the species that we're fishing. So we're predicting that we're going to start seeing reduced production of the carnivores that we like to catch and eat.
1: Which of those things is worrying you the most?
4: I find the change in species distributions both worrying and also, frankly, quite interesting. So we're seeing rapid rain shifts of tropical and temperate species away from the equator um, into northern waters. So there's really good evidence from long-term monitoring projects that that, that's happening in the North Atlantic, and it's true for phytoplankton and zooplankton, um, as well as for fish. So, again, these tropical species are moving northward as the oceans warm. And a study just came out in um, the journal PLOS One. It's open access, so anybody can go look for it. It's um, Faudry et al., 2009. And they had a time series of what fish were present in the northern Gulf of Mexico in the 1970s. And they went back to the same sites and used nets to catch all the fish to figure out what was there now. And really surprisingly, they found that there was about 15 new species that had moved north primarily from coral reefs in the Yucatan Peninsula and had invaded um, salt marsh and seagrass environments now in the northern Gulf of Mexico. And it's primarily due, we think, to the warming that they've seen there, about five to seven degrees Fahrenheit or two to three degrees Celsius of warming over the last 30 years. And it's a really interesting phenomenon because now a whole new suite of predators and herbivores are being exposed to prey species, both plants and fish. They have no evolutionary history with them, so there's really kind of no co-evolutionary history between predator and prey.
1: So, warming oceans are already profoundly mixing up life as we know it. There's lots to think about there. That was John Bruno, a marine ecologist from the University of North Carolina, telling us a bit more about the visible and the invisible changes we're seeing with climate change in the oceans.
0: Well, it's really interesting that John mentioned how shocked he was to find out how fast changes are taking place in the oceans. And one place we're already seeing these changes is the Antarctic. I went along to meet David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey here in Cambridge to find out more and to meet some amazing animals that have come a long way from home.
5: Okay, I think most people know that Antarctica is the coldest place on Earth. But what they don't realise is that it's the driest, the windiest and the highest place on Earth. And all of these are very important to the biology. It has no invasive species, so no species that aren't supposed to be there in the sea, Its native fauna, the animals that have always lived there, occur nowhere else on Earth. They are incredibly sensitive to some things like temperature change. And, of course, this being one of the fastest changing parts on the planet and one of the parts of the planet that affects most others because, of course, ice turns into water that raises sea level. So we can look back at the way that the planet has responded to changes in the past and that record is preserved in the animals there. So that's why we go south to look at many of, uh, many of the animals and what they can tell us about our planet.
0: So what sort of changes have you seen already out in the field from the results that you've got?
5: I've been going down to Antarctica now since about 1990. Uh, and in that time, there have been some really profound changes, uh, particularly in the Bellingshausen Sea, which is around the Antarctic Peninsula. There, it's got quite a lot warmer uh, only in the surface layers, but it's but it's made a big difference. A degree of temperature there doesn't sound much here, but you remember that in the last four and a half million years, uh, the annual temperature variability is about three degrees. Now, that's, that's tiny when we might get that sort of temperature variation in a month uh, around the UK. So big temperature changes on land and in the sea. A lot of sea ice has been lost around the Bellingshausen Sea as well. And that's, and that's important for several things. Um, when the sea changes from white to blue, it absorbs a lot more heat. And that means that our planet is warming up and, uh, and an astronaut sitting on a space station would see that change dramatically. That means that there's a lot more sea open and getting a lot more light. So phytoplankton is making a lot more food. Now that helps us because that's taking carbon, carbon dioxide, out of the air and into the water, and perhaps sequestering it down to the seabed, getting rid of it. So how's the biology reacting to all, all this? Well, more food means that there's, there's new possibilities for some animals. Um, but also, because the sea ice is retreating further south, animals too are retreating further south. And so we're seeing range shifts in where organisms occur.
0: So in the field, we're seeing range and productivity shifts, but the team can also learn a lot more about the animals by bringing them on the 7,000-mile trip back to Cambridge. Right, so we're just heading into the cold room now. We've got to put on some lab coats, not just to keep us warm, but to stop all of our external stuff getting all over your precious samples. Is that right?
5: Yes, that's right. And we're going to tread on a mat that's going to kill anything on our feet when we walk into this sealed uh, aquarium facility.
0: Gosh, it really is quite cold in here. So we've got about 10 tanks absolutely chopped full of things. So we've got starfish and anemones. Why why bring them back at all? I mean it seems like a lot of effort.
5: Yes, it is a lot of effort, and it's very costly in time and expense, but there's lots of work we can do here, particularly with respect to genetics and the physiology, looking at the detailed measurements that we need, carefully controlled uh, experimental facilities that we can do in labs here. So one of the things that we've been doing with some of the animals here is that we've been manipulating the acidity of the water, which is projected to change a lot over the next 100 years, just by tiny amounts and seeing whether that fundamentally alters their ability to build skeletons and to maintain their skeletons it's more tricky building and maintaining a skeleton in antarctic waters changing the acidity there by a tiny amount will make a bigger difference than elsewhere so we can manipulate those changes that are likely to happen in tens of years in months here and these are our model organisms that we have been very carefully and making tiny, tiny changes and looking at the response that they give.
0: Oh my God, that sea spider is huge. It's, it's, like, it's almost the size of a dinner plate. That is massive.
5: This very cold water holds a lot of oxygen. So some animals can reach gigantic sizes. So if we look into this aquarium here, we can see two sea spiders that are the size of my outstretched palm. And that's because these raised oxygen levels means that it's much easier to get oxygen to their tissues. And sea lice and comb jellies also reach gigantic sizes in polar waters.
0: Right, well, it's getting a bit chilly in here. So uh, I think, David, we should probably go back to the office and, and leave your beasties in peace. So, David, what do you think are the changes that we are likely to see in Antarctica in the future?
5: I think we're going to see areas like the Scotia Sea and the Bellingshausen Sea getting much warmer. We're going to see more sea ice losses, and so even more heat being absorbed by Blue Ocean. There's going to be a lot of phytoplankton production. We're going to see collapse of ice shelves, which is going to be dramatic because they tend to happen very quickly. Uh, exposing large areas of, um, of seabed that we have never seen that will gain whole new communities of life that will take down carbon. We're also going to see dramatic changes in the acidity that might fundamentally affect whether organisms are able to maintain skeletons or not. And things like that could, could really reshape the planet. Our problem is on knowing how fast these things are going to happen. And with many, we've been surprised even at the pace of things in the last 10 years. Typically, things are happening faster than we we thought they would.
0: And what do you think that the changes in Antarctica can tell us and will mean for the ocean system and global climate system as a whole?
5: Because it's got the most unstable large ice masses, global sea level rise will be dictated by what goes on in Antarctica. But it also drives the world's ocean circulation system, the thermohaline circulation system. And so sinking water masses and the rate of sinking and the rate of outflow from Antarctica distributes oxygen and ocean current speeds and direction around the planet. And so small changes in the oceanography there have a big deal uh, of difference in the Atlantic and the Pacific. But also, the way that biology responds there is going to be our early warning system on the way that life is going to respond elsewhere. Because in Antarctica, things are changing faster, but also, because life is more sensitive there, it's giving us a a state of things to come elsewhere. It will be a problem to some biodiversity. It won't to others. There will be winners and losers. But I think we will be the biggest losers out of climate change. Most people and most industry live on the coast. We're going to lose a lot of coastal land and of course deserts expanding very quickly and the water table going down dramatically in many places means that we're going to face big migration issues. People aren't going to be able to get enough water, they're going to lose their land and so lots of people are going to be very crowded for very little resources. So yeah, climate change is a big issue for us and Antarctica is going to shape our future.
0: So clearly there are many extremely important changes happening already in Antarctica with big implications for the rest of the world. That was David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey giving me the lowdown on climate change down south and letting me peek at some quite frankly extraordinary but terrifying animals. (laughs) that sea spider really was
1: quite enormous. It's extraordinary to think what it must be like to dive down there in Antarctica. Maybe one day I'll get there myself. Well, it's not just down south. In Antarctica, where rapid changes are taking place due to warming seas, the Arctic, on the opposite side of the planet, is also undergoing remarkable shifts in the abundance and extent of sea ice. We hear a lot about how this might affect big, lovely, charismatic animals like polar bears and walruses, but there's also an awful lot more going on in the Arctic sea ice than first meets the eye. To find To find out more, I had a chat with David Thomas from Bangor University in Wales to find out about the changing face of Arctic sea ice.
3: It's been very clear for the last five, six years or so that we really do have shrinking summer sea ice in the Arctic. This means that the ice that normally lasted throughout many seasons is, is now almost totally disappearing in the summer. This is in contrast to the total ice in the Arctic in the winter period, which is about the same extent as, as it's always been. So when people in the media talk about Arctic sea ice loss, they're really talking about loss of sea ice in the summer months, and there are predictions that, well, the most catastrophic is is by 2013 there will be no ice in the the Arctic Basin in the summer. Um, More conservative estimates say in the next 100 years there will be no uh, ice in the Arctic Basin in the summer. Um, But there will always be Arctic sea ice in the winter, and uh, this is one of the things that tends to be forgotten, is that um, we are talking about long-lasting ice rather than total ice extent in the the Arctic. So one of the consequences of, of there being less summer ice, and this is the Arctic was renowned, in the, in the past so having thick ice flows of, you know, 10 meters thick. Um, uh, the thick ice is actually going, so the, the mean thickness of the ice in the Arctic Ocean is, is going down dramatically. But one of the consequences of ice going is that um, especially snow-covered ice, reflects a lot of solar radiation and, and seawater, which is a rather a dark body, absorbs radiation. So one of the things that's happening with with the Arctic sea ice is as there's getting more and more open water, more and more heat is absorbed and this is actually increasing the rate or is thought by some to be increasing the rate of the melting of the Arctic ice.
1: Well we hear a lot about polar bears and walruses being the wildlife that suffer as Arctic summer ice disappears but there's a lot more going on not just at the top of the food web. What do we know about life under and even in the sea ice and why is it important?
3: The ice was often thought to be a, a, a desert uh, devoid of all life, and we now know that there's actually a, a myriad of organisms from viruses to small crustaceans that actually live within the ice itself. There's a whole host of other larger organisms that live in this very narrow band at the ice water interface on the peripheries of ice flows, and there's a, there's a host of organisms that are, that are eating on the ice biology and the organisms at the ice water interface, like fish larger crustaceans uh, that are the basis of the food web for the seals and the more charismatic polar bears. Um, So so there's a whole host of uh, different habitats that are provided by sea ice and the whole, if you like, ecosystems that are provided by sea ice that are in turn are are, are the food source for for the major charismatics that maybe catch the attention of the media a little bit more
1: Presumably, we still have an awful lot left to discover about these sea ice ecosystems. There must be a lot of things we still don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's right that, uh, you know, sea ice research and the research into the organisms living in sea ice has been going on for the past... Um, hundred years, if you like, but it's only since we've had access to, to sophisticated research vessels and been able to, to launch ice camps um, for, for, for weeks, and months at a time, that we're really actually being able to delve in to see just how fascinating this life around the ice is and how important it is for fueling the whole ecosystem. So what's intriguing in this whole climate change and sea ice extent debate is, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hugely significant for the whole Earth system that this ice is going and that the surface oceans are warming as a result of uh, there being less ice, and that in turn is, is melting the ice. But we don't really have much of an inkling what all these changes are going to do to the biology <laughs> within that system as well. We know. The polar bears need ice flows for which to hunt, but what happens if the whole of the the food web underneath those ice flows is taken out as well? So we we concentrate on the physical factors, I think, in in Arctic sea ice change. Um, We don't know that much about the biological factors, I think it's true to say.
1: Absolutely. And I guess, sadly, to some extent, we're running out of time for these sea ice ecosystems. Is there anywhere in particular that you're focusing your research efforts at the moment?
3: One of the intriguing things about this whole sea ice and climate change effects is, is that, of course, we, we concentrate on the Arctic because that's where tangible changes are taking place. But in the Antarctic, for instance, we're not noticing such major changes in sea ice, except in certain regions like the Antarctic Peninsula. But in the, the rest of the Antarctic, the total sea ice extent is, is, is rather rather stable, if not increasing slightly. So it must be said that the climate change focus on the effects of climate change really are focusing in on the Arctic um, because I think time is running out. You know, If in 50 years time there is no summer sea ice and we don't really understand why the summer sea ice was important for the ecology Um, we're going to be a little bit bamboozled by that so I think we we do have a sense that time is really running out in the Arctic for actually understanding how important these systems are.
1: I guess really the big question is what's going to happen in the years ahead do you have any thoughts on that?
3: I don't think there's any arguments. What well, I'm fairly convinced is that you know, we are going to reach a stage where you know, Arctic sea ice is going to be absent in the summer months. This means that there's going to be much larger periods of open water. Potentially, um, that would mean because because ice is a very good absorber of light. So you put a slab of ice a meter thick over the ocean, and a lot of light gets cut out. So if there's no ice, potentially there will be increases in the amount of uh, productivity or primary production of the of the unicellular phytoplankton. Um, that would mean that maybe there is more food for the copepods and the crustaceans to eat, and therefore more for the fish. No, the most terms, we could say that actually the productivity of the Arctic could actually go up. But we don't actually know how important the the organisms within the sea ice are at the moment for their contribution to productivity in in, in total. So I think there's a lot of guesswork going on and uh, people don't really know. What we do know is that the ice that will be there is going to be thinner, more light will get through to the water, so therefore productivity in the ice and in the surface water could potentially go up
1: that was david thomas from bangor university telling us about some of the incredible ecosystems that live on and in arctic sea ice and the problems they're facing in a warmer world
0: that follows on from the census of marine life story we were talking about earlier and you know not just the big things that we have to worry about it's the small things as well well that's almost the end of the show but before we go we've just got time to find out our critter of the month In each episode of Naked Oceans, we'll be tracking down leading marine experts and asking them, if you were a marine species, what would you be and why? So let's find out who we've caught this week and which species they've
2: chosen. Hello, my name is Nancy Knowlton, and I'm a marine biologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. If I could be a critter in the ocean, I'd be a Caribbean boulder star coral. These are they're called star corals and boulder corals because they make huge stony skeletons and the surface is covered with little mouths surrounded by tentacles that look like stars. Uh, they're also, in a way, the stars of the reef because although they grow very slowly and reproduce just once a year in a, about a half-hour time period, they're very strong so that when a big hurricane comes, uh, all the more fragile corals are broken to pieces, but the star corals survive. Now, in the Caribbean, the star corals have been really common for thousands and thousands of years, but lately they've been suffering a lot from bleaching uh, from too warm water that's too warm and disease. So I guess it is an open question as to whether they'll be the stars of the reef in the future.
0: Fantastic. Our first invertebrate for the Critter of the Month Hall of Fame. You can find out which species other marine scientists and explorers would like to be on our website, that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans, following the links through to Critter of the Month. Well, time has
1: caught up with us once again, and that's all we've got time for this month on Naked Oceans. Tune in again next time when we'll be looking at the science of tracking sharks. How do we follow them? Where do they go? And what do they get up to when we're not watching? That just leaves me to say a big thank you to John Bruno, David Barnes, David Thomas and Nancy Knowlton. Until next time, do get in touch with any questions or just to say hello. We're on Twitter at NakedOceans or you can email us. The address is NakedOceans at TheNakedScientist.com and you'll find more information about this month's show and all the others at TheNakedScientist.com forward slash oceans. Until next time, it's goodbye from Sarah and from me. Goodbye.
0: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.